Hey friends, I'm Pastor John Jay. I'm the lead pastor here and I get to share a teaching with you today. Today we are in, I think, one, two, three, four? The fourth of seven sins? There's only seven. If you can count seven, we're fine. Uh, so we have talked about, yes, it's the fourth, because we have talked about pride. We have talked about lust, anger, and today we're going to talk about greed or avarice. I've been, I mean, I've been thinking, praying, reading about all of these for weeks now. And the, this one about greed has struck me as particularly challenging because I've been in lots of contexts with preaching and lots of congregations and greed comes up because it turns out Jesus talks about money like all the time. And the message that Jesus often shares with us about money, about greed, about possessions, selfishness, all of those sort of things, it's like a hard word. However, this congregation is strange and special and quirky in that, at least in like the big, all of us together instincts that we share, it's a very generous church. It's always been the way I've experienced this congregation. And so sometimes whenever we think about preaching on sin, it can be uh, like a heavier word for people. But actually, I think... That with greed, this is the sin that we feel a lot of the times the world like pushing in on us. And then we have choices to make about what it means to live in a world that's sort of dictated by greed. So wherever you find yourself this morning, um, there is a word in here for you that is of comfort. There will always in the midst of a word of comfort, also a word of challenge. And so both of those are going to be in there. I want to start with, we have these things that are like core convictions inside of our church and our leadership team and our staff in my own heart. And this is one of them, uh, which is that generosity is the engine of the universe. If you've spent like any time with me, you'll know and have heard this phrase. Generosity is the engine of the universe. It's one of these things. It's like another one is that heaven is here. Right, which is sort of the message of the Sermon on the Mount that we've preached through for quite a while before. Um, or that you were created in the image of God. These are like core convictions. Everything grows out of those. So for this one, generosity is the engine of the universe. I will say now that generosity, if you remember, is related to thankfulness. And that generosity and thankfulness are sort of the anecdotes to greed. So if you don't want to listen to anything else, then you just write that down on your forearm in Sharpie and you're good to go. But we're going to talk for a little bit more today. Uh, so... Pride, lust, anger today is greed. Greed is related to like all of these. In fact, each of these sins can find itself expressed in the others. So we talked about lust a couple of weeks ago. We talked about how lust is the ability to turn another person into a commodity. And then that other person as commodity is then able to be consumed, to possess, to give some kind of market value to. This is part of why prostitution is given such strong condemnation in the text, because people are people and dignified and not objects or property. Greed today, I think, finds voice in all of the others. So we're going to talk about that for a little bit. Because it turns out that while we say that generosity is the engine of the universe, a greed is a kind of engine too. And really... Greed is like the engine of our culture. Um, there are lots of people in our congregation who have lived in other parts of the world, in other kinds of economies, uh, economies that are more uh, like 
communitarian or socialistic. Uh, this is what we would call something like a free market economy, which is very, very tricky language because we hear the language of free and we think, well, like Baptists care about free and freedom. And so this is our kind of market. And in fact, the language of like late stage capitalism has gotten really intertwined with the church over time to where it's hard sometimes to distinguish the two. I will say that our economy was not necessarily a thing that Jesus was living within. It was like a whole different system back then. So we've got what we've got, but it has its own logic, its own disposition, its own prejudices. And we really need to understand what those are and what it means to live within them. Not only is greed an engine, in fact, greed is itself a kind of religion. And it's pervasive. And part of being a good citizen of this country, I have found, is becoming comfortable with greed as a religion as the thing that drives a lot of our own values forward. This gets inside of church, too. I was talking with Ken Fong this week about some books that we we're reading, and Sun Chen Ra has written a set of books on sort of the emerging faith after whatever we've been inside of, kind of called like white Christendom is sort of the way that it gets understood. What happens after that with multiculturalism, with different cultures kind of coming together that are not maybe wedded to whatever it is we've been wedded to for a long time. He's got a book called The Next Evangelicalism. And in there, he's got a chapter about materialism and consumption and the ways that it has infected the church. And so we are not ourselves immune from even greed or the logic of greed as a religion. Let me say what that would look like. Uh, we've, I've got a little drawing for everything, and this is my drawing for greed as a religion. This is like the central tenet right here, is that the, the line always goes up and to the right. So the way that we measure health and wealth is, are you making more money than you were making last week? Or for a church, it might be like, is our budget shrinking or is it growing? Or we can count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, that was like three less than last week. So something, something's going wrong. We should, we should retool the whole thing, Pastor Gretchen, right? This isn't working. The logic of the market, it just is pervasive. If you go to a church conference, and if you've gone to a church conference the last 20 years, likely what you will hear are growth strategies. How can we get this thing bigger? How can we pump it up with more and more and more? And there's not really a sense in these conversations about what would maybe be enough. Y'all are enough. Now, yes, we have like extra seats and I think you've got some friends in your life and we hope that what is happening in this space is meaningful enough and formative enough that you would trust us to bring those people into this space. But you are enough as you are here, constituted as this family, as this church. We have all that we need. We have all the money that we need to do the ministries we feel called to. If we live with generous lives, we have all of the love and affection or forgiveness that we would need in this space, all the volunteers we need, all the laughter, all the seriousness, all the people who can do spreadsheets and all the people who can decorate. We have everything that we need here. And we have to remind ourselves of this, I think, even as a staff, because greed pushes certain kinds of hungers into personally our own lives corporately our life together that says we're not yet quite enough and we will be able to relax and be comfortable when we've reached whatever the next thing or the next thing or the next thing is 
So I always say that in preaching, whenever I talk about a thing, I feel the thing. I have felt a sense of scarcity across my life this last couple of weeks. Because when I talk about generosity, I feel stingy. When I talk about gratitude, I feel critical. Uh, and so I've felt this sense of not having enough. And this is like a bit of a confession, but that's what happens whenever I think and pray and live into these things. Here's the other thing that happens inside of greed as a religion. It turns people into, into money, just like lust does. Like we all have a certain monetary value. And not just in this context, like however much you happen to tithe last week or last month or year. Uh, but all kinds of values. If you are, you do risk assessment, right, Bill? Risk assessment, right? Was reading from some company that does uh, like insurance payouts and they have this whole spreadsheet about how much each thing is worth. And one of the things that is given like a line item on here is what is a life worth? Life is worth X number of dollars. And you add that into some equation. You say like this recall, if we didn't do it, it would cost us like, oh, probably 500 people would die. And that, that equals however many millions of dollars in life worth, but the payout for that is only half. So we should just pay it out and 500 people is worth it, right? Like we have a value that gets ascribed to us. Facebook has a value that's subscribed to each of you. In fact, part of what happens inside of an economy based on greed is that each of us gets turned into a value, a number, a piece of data, which is just the worst way to understand who we are and how we are made. It is so thin and flat. It can't be the way that God understands us. The other thing that happens inside of a greed economy is that every gift gets turned into something that gets exchanged. So all of a sudden, even the language of grace, this like freely given undeserved gift, we find a way to put it behind a paywall. This is just the way it is. And the problem with talking about greed is it's a little bit like talking about air. It's just, it's just everywhere. And if you take one thing that doesn't fit in this world, one like little crack in the system and you run it back far enough, what you will likely find on the other side of it is greed and the thirst for power. A lot of what we feel right now in our politics is the language of greed. Like, I'll be greedy for you. Remember that language? And a lot of people are like, that sounds like, that sounds like the thing. Greed and thirst for power. So let's talk about what greed is as the New Testament understands it. If you have a Bible, then you heard the reading this morning from Colossians chapter 3. It says, put to death... In the imperative, it's the command. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. The word for greed there is one of these beautiful Greek words. Uh, it's based on this word, pleonectes, which is two words. Greek has this tendency to shove, like, two, three, four, five, six different words together and call it one new word that means one thing. And so this word for greed, it gets broken up into two parts. First one is pleon, it means more. The next one comes from the root echo, which is this kind of primary verb, which means to hold. And like the front of your bulletin is an image of what greed looks like. It's when you just have too much that you're holding on to. 
But even that too much, you don't feel like is quite enough. So you add another and another and another and another. That's the image of, of greed. It's this word right here. More. And it's the more that robs us of a sense of peacefulness or contentedness. That we are where we need to be, that we are who we need to be with, that we have what we need for this moment. More is like a nagging refrain of our culture, of our world. Always got to go up and to the right. And so we meet people and we immediately think like, okay, your outfit probably costs like some percentage of my outfits cost and you do what for a living and I do what and where is your house located and my house is located in and what's the car that you drive and how many kids can you support and where do they go to school and we do this thing, right? And we keep stacking up till we figure out who's more in this equation and if the Joneses are more then we've got to get like J plus one in our lives, right? Like life is always that. It's whatever we have plus, plus one. So Wendell Berry talks about this Greed is a religion. He says, once greed has been made into an honorable motive, then you have an economy without limits. It has no place for temperance or thrift or the ecological law of return. It will do anything, and it is monstrous by definition. This feels true when we trace it back. There's this video I came across this week from uh, the director, French director and activist, uh, Frederick Bach. It was in the 70s that this came out, and I think he got an Oscar nomination for it. Uh, it's got a French title, but it translates as All Nothing. And it's this 11-minute set of drawings that sort of take the viewer through what has happened to humanity in the midst of a world like steeped in greed? And it's set to this really beautiful uh, violin piece. If you can find it online, check it out. Um, but this is this image of kind of the garden. And there's all of these animals. Up to this point in the video, uh, this sort of creator character has been gazing lovingly all across uh, creation and keeps calling forth animals. And then there's all of this joy and all these like f- colors and togetherness and a sense of belonging. And then there's this part where the humans, like they, they have a, they trip and they fall. And they kind of injure themselves. And in that fall, they both look around, they stand up, and there's like the male and female, and they're, they're naked. And they realize that they're naked because they look down and they have that look on their face like, oh no, something is wrong here. So they look up and they start to scream. They just start to yell, ah! And their faces turn red, which is the the color of anger or wrath. And so then they turn their back on this creator and they go and they pick up weapons. They're growling and they go and they start to kill. And they kill to clothe themselves. And then the next scene, they're sort of wearing all of these beautiful furs and minks. And their hats are now adorned in the colorful feathers of the birds that were just part of their community. And they keep taking and taking and taking and taking. And so violence and greed, they start to move together in one story. And at the very end, you get this memory. It's like a mural of the garden as it was meant to be, where things are how they're supposed to be. And then it flashes. And I think this picture right here is like Pleonectus. It's this one. It flashes into this reaching out in all directions. This 
grasping for more that happens. If I'm honest, when I get anxious, this is what I feel like inside. I get this way with time. Ask Corey, my partner and wife, what happens when I feel really stressed and anything is asked of me, I just go, like, there's not enough. There's not enough time for me to do whatever it is you just asked me to do. When I get anxious and someone needs affection or attention, and I think I don't have enough of that to give right now. And so I keep a distance, right? I can, this is what it feels like inside me. And I imagine is often what it feels like inside a lot of you when the world gets really upside down. All of the sins evidence this. This is our little sketch for sin. It is anything which breaks our primal connections with our neighbor, with creation, with ourselves, and with God. And greed works across all of these. Years and years ago, there was... um, a company decided to do some kind of guerrilla marketing and they, they put out an ad that said, uh, we will pay X thousands of dollars if you will get a tattoo of our brand on your forehead. And so, like somebody thought, I could use that much money. And so they sold their forehead to this company as a billboard, which is like a little bit silly, but also what kind of world is it that we live in in which even our skin is for sale to some corporation? This kind of divorce that happens between us and ourselves. The land has a price, just like a a human life has a price. Last week, my friend Kurt was up here, and he grew up in Kentucky. And if you ask him anything about what it was like to grow up in Kentucky, he will talk about mountaintop removal and what it means to live in a community that was so poor they could not insulate themselves from corporate interests enough to even keep their mountains and they were stripped down for profit. And the land and the water is poisoned. His, his comment to me was, imagine what it's like to grow up in a community where the thing that feeds you is also the thing that poisons your water. Dad, that is sin at work. That is the logic of sin as a system at work. We feel this kind of break here with God because why God? In a world built on greed, the whole point is to be self-sufficient, to need no one, not even God. And so sin does its worst. Let me make this very personal for you. Um, So how many years ago was it? Within the last decade, the generation that was the oldest in my family system all started to die. And we knew with each of these deaths that it would release a certain kind of anxiety into our family system. Because that's just what happens in the midst of deaths. But there was one matriarch who sort of like, her house was on the hill, and and the property was underneath her household, and when she died, we knew that there would be a lot of movement that would happen. And so all of that property went to one person. All of that inheritance went to one person. And then when that person, who was my grandfather, 
uh, was moving toward death. And he uh, was a very, very like, unhappy and unhealthy person in all like, areas of his life. I'm named after him, so I'm still working that out in therapy. Um, it's okay to laugh at that. He decided to give our family one last uh, poisoned gift by directing the inheritance in one direction, to one person, not sharing that gift that we had all sort of lived and grown up on, but it went to, the, to one family member. And the whole thing was sort of built on a story of greed and of accumulation. There's a lot of trees on this property, a lot of pine trees because it's Mississippi. And so the thing to do when you get a bunch of timber is you figure out a way to sell the timber. And so it didn't take long for that family member to sell all the timber. I remember and I still feel a sense of cut, like a break, sin's work in my own family system, separating me from the land that I grew up on, from the family that we grew up in love. Because all of the sudden, these brothers, they come to Jesus and they say in Luke's gospel, uh, Tell my brother to give me my share of the inheritance. And Jesus says, like, who made me judge over y'all? But be careful. Because life is not made up of an abundance of possessions. Then he tells the story of the rich fool who builds the barns and then dies and can't take it with him. May Sarton says there's only one real deprivation, and that's to not be able to give one's gift to those one loves the most. The gift turned inward, unable to be given, becomes a heavy burden, even sometimes a kind of poison. It's as though the flow of life were backed up. For my extended family system, that's what this story has done is it has blocked up the flow of love and affection, of trust, of togetherness. That is not just my story. I'm not going to ask you, but but you all carry some version of so-and-so died and things got greedy and it's not the same anymore. Because even if we don't want to, we live in this culture that says we don't have enough yet. The flow of life is backed up. I use this uh, story, and I went and checked it this week, because you know you carry these stories around, and you're like, am I making this story up, or is this something I actually read years ago? It is something that's true that I read years ago, so you can fact-check me on it now. Um, but you know piranhas? You know the fish? I may have told some of you this story before. They're, apparently, you're not supposed to swim with piranhas. I've never been to the Amazon, so I have not had a choice to swim with piranhas. But apparently, you're not supposed to swim with piranhas because they eat meat in, like, large mouthfuls. Turns out that there are plenty of times. Oh, I have told you a story because I said it before. There are plenty of times you can swim with piranhas. And I said to you, but don't go do it because I'm not 100% when those times are. And I'm not a scientist. 
But here's the thing. When piranhas get most dangerous, it's when the river is cut off and creates these little dead pools of water. Because, you know, rivers, they twist and they turn, and then sometimes they take a shorter route and they leave a turn, like, left over as some kind of still water. We would call that dead water, not living water. It's not flowing any water. And then the piranhas, they eat all the food that's in that little pool. And then the piranhas don't have any more food left, and if you fall in that pool, then they are really, really hungry. When you are cut off from the source of life, of grace, of generosity, creation, the language for that is God in our tradition, then you are like those piranhas in that little pool of water, just fighting for scraps in no sense that more will come. That voraciousness, that hunger, we see it enacted in all kinds of ways right now in our culture. We can't let certain people in this land because there's a finite set of resources in this pool. And so those folks need to stay like the logic is pervasive. In the gift, Lewis Hyde talks about rivers that get cut off or they get dammed up. Um, if you've seen Frozen 2, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I've seen it twice in the last week, so that's why it's on my mind. This sense of like controlling waterways has also been part of the way that we have tamed creation, but we know that when we dam up running water, it has adverse effects down the line as we seek to control the gift, to sell the gift. Jessica Henson, who's part of our church, has been working for a while on the water redevelopment project uh, for Los Angeles with her uh, landscape uh, architectural firm. And she actually edited a book all about water usage because there's all kinds of stuff related to where water can and can't go. If you dam it up, though, something happens. And this is what greed does, is it dams up the flow of life. And it redirects it into smaller and smaller pools. But it isn't just that down the line is affected by greed. It's also you. It's each of us. Because you can't dam up a river without some kind of consequence to that side of the dam. Right? It will swell. And at some point, if you're not careful, it will erupt. This is part of why generosity and gratitude are the anecdotes to greed It's like blowing up the dam. Speaking gratitude, remembering what you were thankful for, it begins to push out into the world. begins to move that life, that grace, that affection away from you toward another. It opens back up the flow. So this is the word I want you to hold on to today. Enough. I said it earlier. The language for greed is the language of more. What if we really believed that there was enough? There's three different ways we can look at this. Is the system closed? Or is there enough present in our midst to satisfy the deepest desires when they're aimed toward their true ends. Yes, of course there is. This is part of why, like, remember the prayer of Jabez? Do y'all remember that prayer? I hate that prayer of Jabez's book. Because that prayer of Jabez's book says that no, there's not enough yet because you haven't asked for it. 
And so God has locked up blessings for you until you have the right kind of incantation or prayer. And then God and God's great generosity will hand you the rest of that. And then you will have enough. The question always begged inside that logic is, at what point was Jesus not enough for what we need? Because God has already given everything. What has God held back? There is enough. And if you are here, you're at least taking the risk to believe the second part, that you might have enough right now. Greed is the attempt to secure your life against the need for other people. And even just showing up here in this building, in these pews, is to say that you have need for one another. Confession, I didn't bring any food to potluck today. But I'm going to eat food. <laughs> but I have enough. And you have enough. There's enough. But, but this is, the, I think, the hardest one for me to believe. Is that you are enough. Already. To be loved by God. To receive love from others. There is no consumption and there is no hoarding that will make you more worthy of love or affection or of belonging in this community. As you are here, you are enough. And if you believe that and trust one another, then we can deepen and mature and texture that faith such that it is well-grounded. I'm going to finish with one story here about a spoon and a drawing. So in this family story about the pine trees and all of the land and all of the disruption that happened, one of the things we got to do is the family all sat around with smaller possessions, like candlesticks and pottery and silver, and everyone got to pick from it. All of uh, at my parents' generation, I wasn't in the room to pick, but, but my mom called me and she said, like, what do you want me to pick from all this stuff? And she told me some of the things that she were thinking. And, and of course, there's like diamond rings and everyone's placing a market value on what this stuff could be worth if you happen to have an eBay account to sell it. And I remembered a couple of things, a spoon and a drawing, that I wanted my mom, if she could, if those would end up still in our household. It's harder to sell a wooden spoon online, so I wasn't too worried about it. But uh, my Aunt Sal would make potato salad with this wooden spoon and it became this kind of memory I would have of being with family. And so my mom has this wooden spoon that was used to make the potato salad. And I said, I would really love if I could have this drawing that was on the wall. So I brought it here with me. Um, there's this newspaper print. And I can't remember. I don't know when it was because the, the date is underneath the frame. But I think it's the 20s. It says, don't overlook edible wild plants. And it sits just right beside our dining room table. And it sat in the kitchen on the wall uh, at my relative's house. And so we have the original drawing of these three plants. And then we have the newspaper clipping. And, and this is what I, I asked if I could have as part of my inheritance. Um, the woman, Isabel Weathersby, is apparently a relative of mine who did the drawing and wrote the article. 
And the whole piece is about, well, I'll just read the opening for you. It says, how to survive a famine. By the way, famines are the language of, uh, of greed as well. Like Pharaoh operates within a world that is always at risk of a famine. So you can never have enough storehouses full of grain, which is part of why Israel has to go into the wilderness to understand that God is enough for them because they have been sort of seeped in the knowledge that there's never enough. And so the language is how to survive a famine. It says you have to, to eat to live. I'll walk around like it's a picture book and you can see it. That'd be good. Uh, it says, today, with the plethora of produce offered by the ever-multiplying supermarkets, we are able to select tropical fruits and other delicacies in addition to the staples with the ease of Eve plucking the apple. And that sentence right there made me fall deeply in love with Isabel Weathersby. <laughs> it's so great. In fact, we are prone to think that the only thing that stands between us and starvation is money. But is it? Do we ever contemplate what you would do if transportation failed or for one reason or another food stocks vanished? What then would you eat to live? And then she goes on to say, uh, somebody who is well initiated would seek out Mother Nature's emergency rations and survive quite well. For growing wild all around us are many edible wild plants. Plants so relished by many that they eat them by preference rather than because of an emergency. And she says, not just like far away edible plants like blackberries, those sort of things, but like dandelions and some plant called a curled dock. I don't know what that is. I've read this over and over and over again over time. And it reminds me of a people who were well settled in their place, uh, who understood that even though most of our lives we live as though we secure our own future, there are times when we are reminded that God has given us all kinds of gifts that we just don't see anymore. This now sits by our table. I would rather have this than all of the diamonds that my family had. Because this is the memory of the best version of their story. That wooden spoon... This understanding that the land produces goodness. And so one set of family bought all the trees and then sold them all. And there was another way that we could have held this story. Greed is idolatry. It is asking for your loyalty, for your affections, for your worship. And we do crazy things when we worship. It makes us captive such that we would destroy even our own family bonds just for a little bit more. But I'll say it one more time. You are enough as you are today. You are the dandelions. You are the surprise that God is giving to creation. You don't have to gather a whole bunch more wisdom or a whole bunch more Bible verses memorized to be the gift that God is giving to this world. You have to just give it away. The temptation will be to hold it, to hold as much as you can and then some more. But I'm asking you to trust that life is not made up of abundance of possessions, but of the gifts that are new every morning. And then the next morning, and then the next one. 
Would you pray with me? God, in your infinite generosity, secure our hearts so that we are not made hungry by surfaces that shimmer, by neon cravings, and by dead water. But move through us, make us channels, rivers, for your love, for your power. Forgive us when we assume that we are the source. And forgive us when we take more than is ours. Help us to live and thrive in a world and in a country that deeply loves more. Give us a sense of the good and of the possible. That we would love this world and one another as you do. And that that would be enough. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Amen. <laughs>